Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're going to love it. Hi, and welcome to Skip Intro, the podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. My name is John Bowen, here with Ali Herbert Burns, and together we look after all the great TV and movies that you see on Binge. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge, with a special focus at the moment on the biggest show in the world. But Ali, we've got a special guest, and we've got a few things to talk about. Explain to everyone what's happening. Well, number one, the biggest show in the world that we're talking about is a little show called House of the Dragon. We've got episode six to catch up and what an episode it was. But our special guest this week is Sam Clench, who regular listeners to the podcast will remember from a few weeks ago. He is officially a political reporter at news.com, but unofficially, I love that he moonlights as a massive Game of Thrones fan, such a fan, in fact, that he he picks up the pen and, and writes for it across uh, news.com as well. So lovely to have you here, Sam. Thank you for joining us again. We're also going to get from you your dinner party recommendations, those best shows from the Binge Vault that you recommend our, our listeners must watch. And John, we've also got another new series that's landed on Binge this week. It's called This England. It's a story of now ex-British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the breakout of COVID in England last year. Can't wait to get stuck into that one. But first, episode six of House of the Dragon. We should address the latest developments in the Stepstones, my lords. Where, I wonder, is our Prince Damon? It's a decade ago and he has since left the region undefended. We have left it undefended. My queen. People have eyes. The consequences of a navigation like the one you toyed would be dire. Sam, Ali, the headline of this episode is that there is quite the time jump that happens. And with that time jump brings us some new actors. That is true, but... Beyond that, John, I'm going to go right out at the very beginning and say this is my favourite episode of the season to date. We're up to ep six of ten. Obviously, we haven't seen the next four, but I just I'm obsessed with this episode. I think there was so much going on. There was so much symmetry. There was so much intrigue. And, yes, we have leapt ahead ten years, haven't we, Sam? Is that about it, ten years? Precisely ten years, yes. Did you think it was a good episode? What did you think? I think they've all been good episodes, personally. <laughs> Correct yeah, answer. You've, you've, got to, you've got to have a favourite child. Come on. <laughs> I was interested in what you two might have thought about the very, very large time jump and specifically about the change in actor for Rhaenyra and Alicent. No, so I think it's handled really well. I think there's certainly no confusion and it's also not done in sort of a cringy, soap opera-y, like one actor goes to bed another way like I think it's handled very well I just really like Millie and the the actress playing Alison so it was just a bit jarring but I think it's done very well I'm sure it's done for a reason that was kind of my initial thought to the cast change the way I see it the first five episodes with Millie Goldcock and Emily Carey in the lead roles were the prologue to the real story and we did a lot of jumping around in time and we just had the biggest time jump that we will have and from now on things slow down a little bit we jump around a lot less. This is the main cast now. We're really into the meat of the story. You've read the book, Sam, so you know those time jumps and you, you're informed from that perspective, which John and I haven't read. But I think from a layman's perspective, Emily and Millie have done such an amazing job and I think Millie especially has has 
she hasn't carried some episodes, but she's definitely been MVP on some of these episodes and she's just been exceptional. So I think we will, I know from some of the social posts we've been running and asking customers their favourite characters and things like, you know, Princess Renea and Millie especially have been super popular with our audience. So whilst I think it's been well done, I, I did take me a while to kind of go, oh, okay, they're not here. Um, and also I felt the biggest impact of it for me was the relationship between Alison and, and Princess Renea has disintegrated or has further deteriorated and seeing a more aggressive and opinionated and sturly queen, clearly the 10 years that have passed have, and we saw it in Ep 5 and the beginnings of her defiance a little bit or her distance with the king, but seeing that play out in what is much a much more a passive aggressive from Princess Renea and an outwardly aggressive from the queen, it was also just a sense of going, okay, this relationship hasn't come back together. It's really they've gone to their corners. I think the relationship between Rhaenyra and Alicent is the absolute core of this season. It's the one thing to keep your closest eye on. And I can understand why some viewers might find the time jump a little jarring in that regard. But I think that the thing, if you're going to take one thing out of this episode, if you're going to look for one takeaway, then it is trying to understand what's going on in Alicent's head. Because, you know, if this show has a protagonist in the traditional sense, then I would say that protagonist is Rhaenyra, right? She's been front and center in all the marketing. She is the one we've been set up to sympathize with the most, I would say. And so now as we see her really settling into an antagonistic dynamic with Alicent, the temptation, it would be easy to just see Alicent becoming the villain. And that's not the reality. I think when you're watching this, it's important to try and put yourself in the head of each character. And when you put yourself in Alison's shoes, the way she's acting, the more assertive, angry way that she's acting actually does make a lot of sense. It does, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, she's, and she has a, a very interesting <laughs> lecture and conversation with her son um, by an open window after um, he's having some fun. But anyway, that scene really points to the fact that there's a real risk that in order to ascend the throne, someone's going to die here and she needs to make sure it's not her children. So she's really beginning to dig in and it's, and it's a battle for the king, uh, his favours, and you really start to see the blind spots or the blind loyalty he has for his daughter. And you wonder even after 10 or 15 years of marriage, you know, how much headway is the queen really making? Who is he really relying on? And I wonder the strength of their marriage sitting underneath this or behind this. You are absolutely correct. Oh, and I haven't read the book. Okay, that's to, good. To pounce on, we don't don't even need to talk about the book for this. Um, you're absolutely correct to pounce on that scene where Alison is speaking to her son as a really key scene, which goes a long way to explaining the difference in this characterization of Alison versus the younger version. The key thing is the moment where she loses her temper with him. Mm. She warns that Rhaenyra could move to cut off any challenge to her succession once she becomes queen. And Aegon who clearly has no interest in any of these responsibilities. He just shrugs it off. He says, well, I just won't challenge her then. What's the big problem? To which she replies, you are the challenge. Just by existing, just by living and breathing, you are the challenge. And this really explains where she's coming from. I mean, here's the situation as Alison sees it. Rhaenyra's sons are bastard children. They're not the sons of her husband, Lainor Valarian. They're the sons of Harwin Strong. Mm. Ryan Corr. That's a big storyline, isn't it? It is. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh, you can't blame her. He's a sexy man. Um, 
But the point That's is, the Australian actor Ryan Cole. Sorry, I'm referring to. Is it? He plays the role. Oh, yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know he was Aussie. That oh, just adds to the appeal, doesn't it? He, um, yeah. <laughs> so everyone, everyone in court, everyone in King's Landing, they all know that these are illegitimate children. When Viserys dies, there are going to be people who feel that a bastard, Rhaenyra's son, her eldest son, Viserys, should not be first in line to the throne. So those people might support Aegon as king. In Alicent's mind, the only way that Rhaenyra can head that off, can stop that from happening, is to remove the potential rival. In other words, to kill Aegon and Alicent's other children. So the prospect of Rhaenyra becoming queen is, in Alicent's view, an existential threat to her own children. She fears that if Viserys dies without replacing Rhaenyra as heir, her kids will be murdered. So she is desperate to convince him of Rhaenyra's wrongdoing and to get Rhaenyra disinherited. And the fact that she's getting nowhere in that endeavor is causing this sense of despair and panic, which is then it's manifesting as this seething anger that we see from her, right? It's like when you're, we've got the footy finals at the moment, right? When your team is behind on the scoreboard and there's a minute left in the grand final and you're at the wrong end of the field, there's this palpable panic. And that's what we're seeing from Alicent. And I think it's largely what's driving her here. And the princess does sort of propose a solution to Alicent to rejoin some lines of the family tree. Yes, it's it's an interesting scene because I think the main takeaway from it is that Rhaenyra doesn't understand why Alicent resents her. She she understands that there is this antipathy between them, but she doesn't really get what's driving Alicent. She proposes this marriage believing that it's a peace offering. It's an olive branch. She doesn't realize that to Alicent, it's actually an insult. It, the idea that she should marry her only daughter to Rhaenyra's bastard son is outrageous to Alicent. Mm-hmm. He sees it as a slap in the face when Rhaenyra seems to genuinely think that this is a peace offering. The, the two just, they don't understand each other at this point in the story. Do we want to talk about Damon's wife? Because for me, having another birthing-related death and the role of the dragons in that as well, you know, going back to kind of episode one and, yeah, you really got a sense of tragedy. But we've talked in previous podcasts, Sam, about the good and the bad of the characters and is anyone purely evil or purely good and the judgments that they're making. A couple of things I wanted to talk about was in the scene where Damon's wife, Lena Valerian, so, and, you know, Damon has 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 married the, the, the Lena Valerian who in earlier episodes was one of the first people put up to marry the king. She wasn't married off to the king. She's, she's instead married Damon. They've, they've had two daughters, um, two children, which in itself is interesting because he previously hasn't had children. So one assumes that they're his children, his blood children. Um, and she's giving birth with her third child. They seem to have a really good marriage. You know, they seem to be doing well. They're, they're living as travelers or gypsies or whatever they're doing. Um, but shacking up with in safe harbour. They come to him in the birth. She's struggling. It looks like there's another breech baby. And the same question is put to him that was put to his brother in episode one. Do you want us to go in and effectively do a medieval style cesarean? And he says, will she, I don't know if he says or he infers, like, will she survive? And then the kind of answer back is no. And he just shakes his head, which is the opposite for obviously the decision that his brother made. So you've got, 
this same horrible decision and to see them respond quite differently. I think that's worth a conversation, but it also just opens up to what we then see next as the choice that outcome came to be versus the powerless way, of course, that it was for Queen Emma in episode one. The contrast between Damon's decision is would-be decision. She takes it into her own hands. But the contrast between Damon and Viserys is very interesting because in most uh most of what we've seen, you would consider Viserys to be the more compassionate brother. Mm-hmm. But Damon is the one who can be ruthless. He's the, I mean, we saw him murder his wife not too long ago in very yeah. brutal fashion. And yet in this situation, Damon is the one who gives that little shake of his head. And he says, well, if it's, if it's going to kill her, then don't do it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Viserys, I think it goes back to his obsession, as he described it all the way back in episode three at this point his obsession with this dream of having his son on the throne. And that is what drove him to make the decision that he did. And it is what has stuck with him since, this sense of guilt yeah. over his wife's death. And, and there's this interesting tiny little moment um, during sort of a montage of scenes at the end of this episode where we see Viserys all alone in his private chambers and he's, he's pondering this little ring on his finger that's Emma's ring. That's mm. the ring from his first wife. And he, you can tell he still has this grief and this guilt that he's been carrying for years and years since that moment. And it's all rooted in that decision. Do you think it also shows the obligation on him as the king to deliver an heir versus for Damon? He's got two daughters. You know, at the moment he's not in line to be king. He doesn't have that duty over love decision that King Viserys had, you know, in that moment he's a husband first uh, and isn't worrying about a bloodline or or who's coming up behind him. There's this very intense scene where his wife then makes the decision, gets out of bed, goes out to the dragon and effectively, as we saw Princess Renea in episode one, command her dragon to breathe fire that cremated her mother and her brother. Lena Valerian commands Damon's dragon to to effectively kill her. Ah, this is where I this is where I get to be a nerd and correct you. Oh, tell me, tell me. Uh, the dragon is her dragon, which oh, makes it even, her dragon. It's, it's even more tragic because it's like the dragon. It's kind of like pets, right? It's like walking up to your dog and asking him to kill you. That's what adds this extra tragic layer to it. I don't know. This is a really tragic scene, but it does have the thing that Emma's death didn't, which is that the woman is an active agent. She's making the decision. Yeah. It's not being, it's not being forced upon her. I thought that scene was remarkable in terms of, yeah, what it said about her, what it said about the dragon, what it said about this ongoing storyline of women's will. Let's jump to another fire that happens. So we were talking before about Ryan Corr. So the Australian actor Ryan Corr, he plays the role of Sir Strongman or something. What do they call him? His name is Sir Harwin Strong, but his nickname is Breakbones. Breakbone. That's what I was thinking about, Strongman. Cool. Yeah. It's a cool nickname, right? Well, Ryan came out um, to the premiere that we had in Sydney um, before episode one and he he joined us on the red carpet. He joined us um, to, to speak to fans and he couldn't tell us much and I remember at the time um, he did t- he did on the side um, tell us that 
you know, his character will come to a demise. It's Game of Thrones. Guess what? Someone dies. But he was very, very guarded and could not give us a lot of information about his character. And now I understood why. When I was watching this, I was like, whoa, this is a really big role because you've effectively had a, um, a, an ongoing relationship with Princess Renea and have what we find here is the allegation or the gossip amongst court is that he's actually the father of her three children who interestingly aren't looking like their father. So, you know, um, but they do very much look like him, don't they? So there's an element there of that relationship, but equally he's the son of Lionel. He's his father. And so what it's putting under pressure is his ability to guide the king and help the king because the king is compromised by this relationship that's going on between him and the princess. He's gone home to his house and um, it's not an accidental fire that brings about his demise. And we assume he and his father both die. We see a couple of bodies being pulled out of the castle, but is that what we should expect, Sam? Yeah, they're both dead. They're both gone. There's a few interesting things to unpack in what you said there. The first uh, scene, extended scene of the episode is where Rhaenyra gives birth to her new son, Joffrey, and is immediately, I mean, the, the queen, Alicent, immediately wants to see the child. And the thing we hear repeatedly from the child's parents is why? Why is she doing this? Uh, and we learn why, because in that scene with Alicent and the kid, she is examining the kid's hair. She wants to see whether it looks like Lenor Valarian or whether it's another child of Rhaenyra that looks like Harwin Strong and has his hair color. Uh, and the answer is it looks like Harwin Strong. Sam, I thought what you said was really interesting about the first five episodes being like a prologue and that we're kind of now in the meat of the story now that we've, you know, the children are of a certain age and we're at a certain period in time. I think I might know the answer to this because you've alluded to it before, but who who should we be watching as we kind of, as we go into the next, the back half of this season? Feeling like Alison still has a, has a way to go in this story, but... I would advise that, and I have said this before, but I would double down on it now as the two characters who are most central to the story are Rhaenyra and Alicent and their, their relationship with each other and the various uh, things that they are going to do in the coming episodes. And that, that's not to say that the other characters are not important. Sam, we could talk about this for yonks. We've got other things we need to jump onto, but um, yeah, what an episode. Hey, John, ep six. Woof. Yes, so episode six and its um, big time jump and its many new characters and grown-up children is uh, streaming for you now on Binge. Uh, new episodes of House of the Dragon are released each Monday at 11 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. Um, and, of course, every episode of Game of Thrones is also streaming for you right now. Dracarys! Let the people remember the ancient strength of House Targaryen. Co-written and directed by Michael Winterbottom, This England stars Kenneth Branagh as Boris Johnson in a dramatic retelling of his time as Prime Minister during the COVID pandemic. We, we, just, we need some good news to announce. I'm concerned about the lack of transparency. It could just look like jobs for the boys. What do you think, Dom? Our focus groups show that people will accept a lockdown if we support them financially. I agree. Obviously, the impact on the economy would be huge. Why haven't we met the target? Don't blame me, Dom. Okay, okay, calm down, boys. I think you need to see this. What the hell is going on? We look like a bunch of amateurs. Not one of Dom's bright ideas. You have to rein him in. They're moving the PM to intensive care. 
this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. Now, Ali, Sam knows a lot about politics. I don't. Um, but you're from Canberra, John, so it doesn't from everyone from Canberra know Yeah, so, so it's in the blood. But <laughs> we're in a unique situation here where you're the only one of the three of us that has seen this um, series, so we would because, love to hear about it. Because we're recording it just before it's dropped on binge, haven't we? So yes. This England is effectively the story of Britain's early response to the COVID pandemic starting in in kind of February, March of 2020. It's told through the eyes of Boris Johnson, who has just, the episode starts with him coming to power, having succeeded uh, Theresa May with the promise to England to get Brexit done. If you can cast your mind back to 2019 um, and the negotiations that were happening between the Brits and the Europeans as they were trying to get that deal done, borders in Ireland, a whole lot of things. It's a memory go. But anyway, that's all the end of Theresa May. Boris Johnson comes into power. He is populist. I kind of feel like he's a person that normally operates at a up in the clouds and maybe ain't so good on the detail. And what you see in this show is his reaction and response as a leader, an early leader coming into power with other things happening in his life and perhaps the strengths and weaknesses of his character that have got him to this position playing out in the way England responds or Britain responds to the early days of COVID. So what I think is interesting about this is he's obviously recently left being Prime Minister. He'd been under a lot of pressure and it was ultimately this, I think it was called, Sam, you know, this party gate where the the Conservatives who had been putting strong restrictions on the British people to stay at home, to not go to funerals, to, you know, really be locked up, were themselves having kind of catch-ups, casual catch-ups and drinking and, you know, parties effectively um, under the secrecy perhaps of of 10 Downing Street and and Westminster. He resisted this all all British summer, really tried to dodge this being the thing that brought down his parliament. What we've just seen play out in the last week or two is him finally handing over the reins and and Liz Truss as the new Prime Minister of England coming in. But what is brilliant about this, politics aside, this is a study of a man brilliantly played by Kenneth Branagh as Boris Johnson who, let's, let's get the award cabinet out and ready he shuffles he looks he the baggy shirt the kind of tummy hanging out over his belly the way boris's way speaks to people you can see you know he's just absolutely nailed this role um you just you just think you're watching boris johnson within the first minute or two you literally just feel like it's him on television um but what is amazing about it and if boris johnson hadn't already had to stand down under the pressure of partygate this i think might have been the public moment that would have put the pressure, that really would have put heat the pressure on him. Because what comes clear in the first episode, Boris Johnson is somewhat distracted by what's going on in his own life. He's navigating a divorce from his wife of many years. And he had accepted um, a book deal before he was prime minister to write the complete collection of Shakespeare. Because of course, Boris Johnson went to Eton and is quite a, a, a scholarly person in the traditional academic sense, you could say. And he has agreed to write this like book of Shakespeare or review of Shakespeare collection. And he got a massive advance for it and has never delivered the manuscript. And the publishers have effectively said, this is a true story, everybody. The publishers effectively saying, if you don't finish this book, you have to pay me back the advance and you're not getting the rest of your advance. And this advance is millions and millions of pounds. Boris, he's in a jam. He's had an affair after many, many other affairs on his wife. And he decides to finish writing the book so that he can 
get the extra millions of pounds that are going to get paid to him by the book distributor, publisher, rather than have to hand back the advance. So when England is facing potentially one of its largest crises since war, Boris Johnson's hold up in the country writing a book about Shakespeare. And that is what this England kind of, amongst a whole lot of other awesome themes, it really starts to show you this man and what he was doing and how he's kind of bumbling through a massive crisis and how he was effectively running 10 Downing Street and, and his cabinet. It's um it's compelling television. Sam, have I sold you? It sounds like an interesting example of how politicians' personal lives actually can matter in terms of their, their ability to do the job well. There's always this interesting debate with political coverage whether Boris Johnson's personal life is fair game, whether it matters that we have no idea how many children he's had with how many women. Um, Are we still talking uh, about I, House of Dragon or this thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually didn't know any of this about the, the Shakespeare stuff. That's incredible. I mean, yeah, I don't know how much the advance was, but it was like sizable enough that he effectively needed the way it's shown in the show is that he effectively needed the advance or the the rest of the payment to help settle the wife because they seem to be that kind of classically upper wealthy English of potentially asset rich and cash poor. So he's like, it's obviously a sizable enough amount of money that it comes into play and he's divorced. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah, the, it's interesting that you describe him that way because he's he's sort of built this image during his time in politics as a man of the people, you know, pro-Brexit. This guy went to Eason. He's, he's upper class. I think one of his middle names is DeFeffel. <laughs> called Boris something DeFeffel Johnson. Like this extravagant <laughs> name. He's clearly of the upper class. Um, and this is a very, it's a very upper class concern. Oh, yeah. I can't focus on running the country because I have to finish my book about Shakespeare, you know? It is. And literally, and because he doesn't want to tell the children, and you can see it, there's scenes about his relationship with his children. They're not returning his calls. He hasn't wanted to tell them yet that, that Carrie's pregnant um, while he's finalising the divorce. So he can, he's a conflicted, distracted man is, is my takeaway from this episode. And that is all playing out while England's early response to COVID. And there are scenes where you're seeing, you know, the health minister meet with doctors and they're like, we don't have PPE gear. And I mean, we all know what that is now, but a few years ago, you didn't know. And early days, oh, this is alarmist. You know, and they weren't necessarily believers. They were quite, um, we're not going to shut down and all the rest of it. So this is in the early denial stage. And you wonder how much of that was informed by the fact that Boris wasn't across the detail. And we, he only really, when he got so sick and nearly died, understood what was really going on. This covers the journey up to that moment. And I think it's going to have everyone talking. I'm currently um, in the middle of a veep rewatch oh, your description of this sounds like a like a plot point in veep unfortunately it just sounds far more depressing than how veep would have handled it it's true because when i first saw this episode john boris johnson hadn't lost his job and when we were talking about it with the with the producers it was like this this could be the final straw that brings him down kind of thing so i think it's going to be interesting to see the reaction that, that the brits have to this knowing that he has already lost office very very good show i can't wait to see i've only seen this very first early episode so i too can't wait to see where we go over the six episodes over the coming weeks this england premieres this thursday september 29th on binge with new episodes weekly This sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this other Eden, demi-paradise. 
Dinner party recommendations for those new to the podcast are the shows that we tell our friends to watch. If we're at dinner and someone's like, what am I, I need a new show to watch. We go either into the vault of the golden oldies on binge or just the shows that John and I always feel like deserve a little bit more love. So Sam, as our guest today, please let us know, is there a favorite on binge that you would recommend to your friends? Yeah, I'm going a bit into the vault. I think it's a couple of years old, this show, but it it didn't really get the attention it deserved at the time. Um, and since we've been talking about House of the Dragon again, I am once again going to recommend something with a tiny, tiny link to Game of Thrones. It is called Vigil. It's a six-part... <laughs> yeah, Love it. <laughs> six-part British crime miniseries, and it stars, among other people, Rose Leslie whom Thrones fans might recognise as Egret, Jon Snow's lover from the early seasons of Thrones. Um, so we know from that that she's a very good actress and she's very, very, very good in Vigil. The basic premise is this, right? There's a mysterious death on board the HMS Vigil, which is a nuclear-powered submarine, and Detective Chief Inspector Amy Silver, played by Saran Jones, is sent onto the submarine to investigate. There are many twists and turns ensuing from that point, obviously. And it has, I'd say it has a rather unique atmosphere because of the setting. You have this detective who is fish out of water, or fish in water, I guess. Uh, she's not comfortable at sea, put it that way. Uh, the environment is very foreign to her and she's trapped there and it's claustrophobic and she's clashing with the members of the crew and against all of that backdrop, she also has to solve this really baffling murder mystery. Now, I am a sucker for pretty much any British crime drama. I don't know what it is about the Brits. They just do these things so well. And this one actually stood out amongst the, all of the constellation of British crime dramas because it was constantly surprising me and outsmarting me. Uh, I'm the sort of insufferable person who was sitting there on the couch with my wife constantly theorizing about whatever the answer might be to the mystery. Multiple times I thought I might've unraveled it here and without fail, every time I was wrong, there was always another wrinkle that I hadn't anticipated. Uh, it surprised me on a level that most crime dramas do not manage. Excellent suggestion, Sam. Thank you for bringing that back to everyone's attention. There's 20 different ways could kill Vigil's crew single-handed. This week on Skip Intro, we discussed House of the Dragon episode six. We talked about the new British drama, This England, and Sam suggested that we check out Vigil. Sam, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast. It's great to have you. I'm John Bowen, joined every week by Ali Herbert Burns. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next week with more House of the Dragon and more Skip Intro. Skip Intro.